My name is Nick Holloway. I'm not sick. I'm not crazy, but I am invisible. I'm making this tape because in a few hours I could be dead. This is my last chance. I've got a hell of a story to tell. Welcome to the Rewire Movie Podcast. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. You know, it's always difficult with people like this. No strong emotional ties, no political beliefs, no particular interests. Matter of fact, when you think about it, the man has the perfect profile. He was invisible before he was invisible. As part of our throwback series, today we'll be discussing Memoirs of an Invisible Man, starring Chevy Chase, Daryl Hannah, and Sam Neill, directed by John Carpenter. Hello and welcome to the Rewire Movie Podcast. It's Gally, the podcaster who's in a state of molecular flux from Glasgow. <laughs> Don't tell anyone I cried. It's Devlin in London. <laughs> um, what are we doing? I hope it's foreplay. It's Patrick from London. <laughs> uh, welcome back, guys. And we're, uh, we're doing a throwback episode. And this one is Devlin's choice. It is. It's very nice to uh, speak to you all again. I hope that this was an enjoyable experience for you. Although we'll find out <laughs> in, the next, in the next hour and a half to two hours whether you now hate me. Here's a question, Devlin. Uh, I think me and Patrick both probably wanted mm-hmm. this one answering uh, when we were... Why, uh, Devlin, why? Yeah, why? Why, out of all of John Carpenter's oeuvre, would you pick Memoirs of an Invisible Man? Well, uh, I picked it because I guess like the, the main criteria we, we talk about for when we're, when we're looking at these films is a film that you watched a lot or you just, you know... You either remember very, very, very well from childhood or a film that had some effect on you during childhood. And for for whatever reason, I watched this film a lot as a kid, um, as ever with these things. Chances are the reason why it was on TV so much was because uh, it was a bit of a financial flop. And uh, studios like to ditch that sort of stuff onto TV to try and make back some revenue. Uh, also, the rights are cheaper, so... It's kind of a win-win. It means that BBC Two get to clog up the schedules with the same old films over and over again for not very much money. Um, and when I watched it as a kid, um, I, I didn't know who John Carpenter was, really, uh, nor did I really think of this as a John Carpenter film. It was only much later that I became a big fan of of Carpenter's work that uh, I realized that this film that I used to really like when I was... what eight nine maybe was uh was was one of johnny c's if i were to sit here and want to chat with you guys about i don't know the thing or big trouble in little china or uh halloween or fucking escape from new york any of these i i think i would struggle to be uh impartial or really have much of anything to say beyond uh and this bit happened and and that was ace too uh, it could be like a bit hagiog- a bit of a hagiography. So I find the the latter part of John Carpenter's career 
almost more fascinating than the early part. Yeah, we we watched a lot of those later films, didn't we? I, I remember, did we watch Ghost yeah, of Mars together? Yeah, we did. I think I, I think I remember at uni watching that. It's, it's yeah. Just... Some Statham, some very yeah, early Statham. Uh, the, the brief shining moment for Natasha Henstridge. <laughs> she got her stuff in well Ooh, she could. She's vacuous in that. Um, yeah. Ice Cube, who is, of course, you know, oh, God, I mean, yeah. I, Ice Cube, he's got such a He's got such a great career that he can just like dip in and out of these sort of catastrophes and he does the same thing in every single film. But, you know, when it works, it works. When it doesn't, he can just shrug it off because he's Ice Cube. So, yeah, it's it's an interesting one. This is basically um, the first time that John Carpenter didn't present the film as a John Carpenter movie. This was purely a a director Mm. for hire gig. Everything from uh, Assault on Precinct 13 really onwards. Um the the streak that he went on throughout the uh the 1980s is sort of pretty legendary as far as having very few flaws in it it's kind of like i don't know like the simpsons seasons two through eight with like with dark star being the simpsons season one which is the weird one that you still like even though it's dead odd dark star's great yeah it is it's great but it's also it's it's a it's a bit of an outlier in you know, it doesn't have the. Was he a student though when he did Dark? Star? He was, yeah. Was yeah, like, yeah. It's one of the the only yeah, like, was, student yeah. films that. He I was. Know, uh, um, I don't know whether he was a student of, but he was certainly um, at USC at the same time that uh, Irving Kirshner was was oh, on yeah. the on the staff there, and he would have been yeah uh, not too far uh, uh, removed from George Lucas's era oh, okay. of, of right. USC so they were roughly contemporaries um but yeah Darkstar was was uh him and Dan O'Bannon putting this thing together but um Assault on Precinct 13 was kind of the first you know the first time he he made these super gritty um indulge in his Howard Hawks fascination and so yeah so, so that that run that he was on very much came to a, a an abrupt end at the end of the 80s you would say they live is like you know the last of the Carpenter classics. Although looking back across like that streak of films, the vast majority of them didn't do particularly well. So when did John Carpenter sort of get reappraised as actually you know what here's one of the most underrated directors in American cinema? You can't move these days for Carpenter influence. You look back at super obvious ones like The Guest or um, everything Nicholas Winding Refn does. Um, like his fingerprints are all over modern cinema. I think that was probably what created the reappraisal, which is uh, filmmakers just coming out and, and showing really obvious influence from from his films. Because um, I guess, yeah, uh, what was Ghost of Mars was like 2001. And at that point, he was in the process of being like washed up. He was coming off Escape from LA, which just has that, it's it's impossible to think about Escape from LA without thinking about the surfing scene in it. I think I came to come to quite late though myself, because um, mm. the fact the first film I'm aware of seeing of his in like in chronological order of when I saw them was Village of the Damned. Oh, I, okay, yeah. I remember watching that at home and my mum and dad oh, like wow, yeah. really enjoying it, and then my dad going on to then just love uh, Snake Plissken. Right. From LA and him going mm. so I, I'm wondering if mum and dad even were late to it as well and Village of the Dam kicked it off because dad loved Escape from LA and oh, then wow. I loved Escape from LA at that point and 
I don't know. I didn't really get into Carpenter films till I was much older, till I was mm. 18 or maybe when I started uni. And I'm wondering if it's because of you guys. Oh, no, The Thing. My dad was a big th- fan of right, The Thing yeah. as well. I wonder if the change in media as in from VHS to DVD as well maybe had a bit of a... I think that's what um, did it for me. It probably would have served him really well because one of his, his big calling cards, there's, there's sort of two things which has become really recognisable. One is the the awesome synthesizer yeah. scores and the other is that beautiful use of that big big widescreen frame with all the you know the the lens flare flashing across it and like really filling out that frame and when you're watching it on a videotape on a four by uh, a four three television or even if you're watching like some old pan and scan dvd where they've you know they've cropped out all of the the detail and stuff you, you don't really get to see uh, I remember going to a, um, a screening of the thing. Probably, it was when I was living back in Darlington, so I was probably looking at, I don't know, like 2008, maybe, 2007, 2008. Um, me and Matt, we went to, to, to Middlesbrough to see it. Um, and even though I'd seen it a few times, like there's there's just something about seeing the that craftsmanship on that scale is just kind of, kind of mind-blowing. Oh, sorry, Patrick. I suppose, so the audience know, I think your favorite is Big Trouble in Little China, right, Devin? Uh, mine, I, it, it fluctuates, but yeah, I, I would say it's the one that I enjoy watching it's the most. It's the one I'm aware of you referring to and dressing <laughs> yeah. up as the most. And I yeah. have dressed as, as, as <laughs> Jack Burton on many occasions. take us to that bar in Glasgow yeah. with the, uh, the yeah. um, mural on the, yeah. There's a photo of me doing the little hand gesture outside it, yeah. I'm very proud of that one. <laughs> I love I love John Carpenter stuff, but I feel like um, you can glean a lot ab- about what works for John Carpenter by looking at what doesn't work for John Carpenter. And also, like I say, this is a film that I really liked. So sort of go back and watch it with you guys and have a chat about it and see whether because uh, you you guys weren't familiar with this, you'd never you'd never seen it. Hadn't seen it. Right. Never seen it. Gals. So Sam Neill looms large in my memory. So once Jurassic Park comes out a year later, I pretty much subsume every Sam Neill film ever to the point where I think I watched Bicentennial Man about four times, even though it's dreadful. (laughs) (laughs) For four times to watch the same film? Like, that was just my thing, dude. I was just a very, very impulsive kind of kid when it came down to the films. And and I remember (laughs) Memoirs of an Invisible Man. What I would say, Devin, is treat my viewing of this now as i barely remembered anything about the film i think i had scanty okay. guesses at the end of the terminator episode where i was sort of just trying to pull things out of the memory but sam neil a beach house chevy chase is all yep. i could actually remember so watching this again right. was like watching it with fresh eyes because it's got to be over 20 years for me since i've seen this film because yeah it, it is a, it is a strange one there's some stuff as we get into it. I think that we can find some stuff in there that you can see where John Carpenter is engaged, and there's some interesting uh, parallels with other films of his. And then there are other parts where maybe you don't really get the impression that he's entirely meshing with the project. So it's an interesting one. Just just before, like something I learned. and I don't know whether this has ever been a trope of Carpenter Dublin because you you are. I, I count you as the carpenter expert here, but this was a bit of a paycheck film for him. I think he yeah, it, he, right? he needed so it. He wasn't really that interested, but 
made it and it was Ivan Reitman who was up for it yes to start. yeah yeah um so the the project was basically shepherded through by Chevy Chase he was the one who uh I don't know whether he optioned yeah. the rights for the film or whether he encouraged the studio to option the rights for the film. But if you look at the... It, it was a bit of both, at... I think. Like, he he was using his name to get it made because he wanted to do something yeah. a bit more serious, which was really interesting, having watched it. If you look at the, the credits right at the start of the film, it calls it uh, a Cornelius production, and that is Chevy Chase's real first name. Because Chevy Chase oh, is right, actually okay. a town in... Uh, where is it? I think it's in, like, Maryland? It's right next to where uh, the headquarters of uh, the company I work for is. Uh, that's how I know it because I, I was I got an email from somebody and the address was Chevy Chase. I was like, "Fuck off!" And then it turns out it's actually a town. <laughs> <laughs> um, I didn't write "fuck off." He knew we were talking about him. Yeah. Right? Um, but yeah, uh, so it's it's very much a, a Chevy Chase production, and it was uh, so. He optioned it, I think, back in like 1986 or 87. Right. Um, at which point wow. it would have made all the sense in the world to go to Ivan Reitman because Ivan Reitman was two years removed from like the the biggest hit. Yeah. Um, they got William Goldman yeah. in to script it. Um, this was pre Princess oh. Bride William Goldman. So he was in a bit of a wilderness years thing because he'd written his uh, his memoirs. And he'd slagged a bunch of people off and nobody would hire him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is a pretty ballsy He's such move. A, such a legend. He is. Oh, he, well, he, um, so he and, and Chevy, he turned in a draft. Chevy Chase said, this is basically Clark Griswold turns invisible. This is too comedic. I don't want to do this. William Goldman uh, tried to do some rewrites on it, but um, clashed with Chevy Chase as most people tended to do. Wow. And uh, Goldman's mm. response was, I'm too old and too rich for this shit. And he left. <laughs> so, <laughs> brilliant. Um, so, and then, then Ivan Reitman walked because he was happy with the script as it was. So uh, um, Chevy Chase brought in two new writers. Uh, I wrote their names down because I'd never heard of them. Uh, one was called... Uh, Dana Olson. Who wrote The Burbs. And Robert Collector. Which is great. Dana Olson wrote The Burbs. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, Robert Collector, God. however, the only credit well, I also did. wrote Inspector Gadget, though. Oh Jesus! <laughs> well, uh, Dana Dana oh, Olson also wrote the Broderick uh, Inspector Gadget. So, you know, Goldman isn't free either. He wrote The Ghost in the Darkness. So everyone has a <laughs> has a little bit. Oh, as if you didn't enjoy The Ghost in the Darkness. <laughs> and the other writer was this guy uh, Robert Collector, and I saw on his IMDb that he'd written Red Heat, and I was like, oh fuck, Red Heat, and it's, it's not that Red Heat. It's a weird film from 1985 starring Linda Blair. <laughs> it's a blue movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just a strange post-exorcist. Whenever I watch any film and I see multiple production companies and then followed by multiple screenwriters, I'm already like, uh-oh, we might be mm. watching a bit. I mean, uh, this, was, this was only three. So I guess what you've got is, you know, Golden was the guy who came up with the majority of the... Um, the, the plot structure probably and then the two writers were brought in uh two writers who at the time would have been a, a lot less experienced less clout maybe more likely to kind of make the changes that that chevy would have wanted because he wanted a serious film didn't he he did yeah i i've always always felt that will Ferrell reminds me of chevy chase it's interesting that when i read he wanted a serious film mm. and then you know like i suppose Saturday Night Live actors, they, they do this a lot. Like 
Jim Carrey went serious, Man on the Moon, yeah. and Robin Williams. Yeah. yeah, well, by Centennial Man. Even modern comedians like Steve Carell. But like, it reminded me of Will Ferrell, uh, Stranger Than Fiction. It, it reminded me of the performance in that and his move. Kind of the, the closest analogue to Chevy Chase in terms of that era, coming out of Saturday Night Live, having quite a, a defined persona, finding success in like mainstream comedy films and kind of chafing against it would be uh, like Bill Murray, who he knew, worked with, and fucking hated. <laughs> The, the two really? of them, yeah, they got they got in a fist fight backstage at Saturday Night Live. We haven't got into the plot of this, Blimey. but the parallels between Memoirs and Invisible Man and a year later Groundhog Day to me it, it it felt like one of the same, but one nailed it and one did not. Uh, which one? Well, listen and see. The so the era that he actually optioned the book was like eighty six. So. Uh, his stock would have been very high at that point. He would have been coming off uh, the first two vacation movies and, mm-hmm. um, well, so Fletch. Fletch was the biggest hit. And I think Fletch and the character that he played in Fletch looms very, very, very large over this film, possibly in a way that kind of dilutes what he was maybe going for. Um, but sort of around that time, um, so Bill Murray in 1985, he made uh, The Razor's Edge which I'd literally just sat through for the first time this week because I wanted to watch it to kind of get a bit of a comparison. Fuck me, that took me three days to finish. Wow. Because it's not good. <laughs> um, it's a Bill Murray passion project. And, the, you know, he did the same. He only did Ghostbusters on the proviso that uh, Columbia Pictures would put up the money for the Razor's Edge for him. And it's based on a Somerset Maugham novel and it's set in the First World War. Uh, and he gets to he gets to learn all of India's knowledge in the in the space of one edit and he gets to read nothing but you know literature and and philosophy and it's it's a it's a real ego trip and i think um this film has the same kind of basis it's got the same smell hasn't it yeah you know you said about um fletch but look at those late 80s for chase he's basically either in films where his mates have cast him or he's doing a sequel to a film that's been successful the, the Lampoons, Fletch had a sequel, yep. mm-hmm. Caddyshack 2. Yeah. So actually, when he's doing this, I'm not to say that this is his last hurrah, but he's lucky that he's even a star in this film because yeah. at this point, that's, he's just got true. Clark Griswold and Fletch and, and that's mm. it. He's been and an he was he was one of, comedy film. One of the three amigos. It. Yeah, but one which... of the three amigos <laughs> of which Steve Martin is way better. So it's just, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a mm. big fan of Chevy Chase, and really, the only time I've yeah. ever thought that he's ever worked was in the National Lampoon's films, and that's because he's playing mm. a fool, but every time he plays the sort of Bill Murray sarcastic, smartest man in the room stuff, he's not charming enough yes. to make to make mm, me like him. He, actually, he ends up just being obnoxious, as opposed to Bill yeah. Murray, who's got this weird like effect where he just, even though he's actually putting you down... You're like, oh yeah, but you're so witty. I mean, he'd be a great politician, Bill Murray, if he if he wanted to ever do it. Yeah, well, he's he's detached. He's more detached than ironic, and you don't get the feeling that Chevy Chase is that same. He can't really pull off that level of detachment because you get the impression that he is trying to he's trying to alpha every situation. Like mm-hmm. he is trying to mm-hmm. kind of. Um, I mean, most people who worked with him in in that in that kind of era, and also up until very recently, I mean. He left uh, uh, the very terrific community under a bit of a cloud because he 
he and the showrunner Dan Harmon used to clash all the time. He was great in Community because he was legitimately an asshole, and he helped to keep that show kind of feeling. <laughs> it gave it like a real edge that he wouldn't have had otherwise. It might have collapsed into a bit of a sort of um, self-congratulatory kind of self-aware sitcom of you know hugs and tweeners, but he's in it and he's a prick, and it really it really works. <laughs> Like the, the, the balance of the show is off when he's not there. So, um, mm. but I, I, uh, I, so I have, uh, I have seen Chevy in person. Um, have you? I have my, my brother's brother-in-law, um, uh, super nice guy. He wanted to go see an evening with Chevy Chase at the Hammersmith Apollo of all places, which is massive. And it was a sellout. Was so it was, it was a big deal. Uh, uh, and, and they bring him out and, um, I mean, most people say that you know they they wheel him out and uh, we're sitting in the in the audience. I, I'd never um I'd never been to anything like this, like these evenings with because it's I'm not particularly interested. But I don't know. I, I guess it was just it was Chevy Chase, and I have a lot of kind of leftover fond memories of of really liking his films when I was a kid, including this one. Really, honestly, this is probably the first film that I remember watching Chevy Chase in a lot. So. It's between this and, and Christmas Vacation, really. Um, and so we, we wondered what the, the setup was going to be. And then we we're like, okay, well, I assume they'll bring out an interviewer because he's not just going to stand there and monologue. Um, and they did bring out an interviewer. They brought out a uh, disgraced radio DJ and creator of the UKIP Calypso, Mike Reed. Shit. Who is a fucking fossil. And they so they wheel him out. They wheel them both out. And this shit show starts almost immediately. Um, Chevy Chase weirdly comes out of the whole thing looking quite nice because he's just confused because he doesn't know yeah. who he doesn't know who Mike he Reed can't is. Know who <laughs> Mike Reed is? Yeah, I was going to say. No. There's no way he knows who Frank Butcher is. <laughs> oh no, not that Mike Reed. Oh shit, not that Mike Reed. Oh, oh no. Oh, I would have fucking loved it. <laughs> I'm afraid he's long dead, Gally. <laughs> <laughs> no, Frank Butcher confused as fuck on stage at the Hammersmith Apollo, just like vaguely remembering who Chevy Chases would be amazing, and I would, and I would have been very happy. But um, the other Mike Reed, but Mike, yeah, no, the the bad Mike Reed, the awful one. Um, so. So Mike Reed comes out, and as soon as they say, ladies and gentlemen, Mike Reed, and every like two-thirds of the audience just go, what <laughs> the fuck? Like, and he comes out. Wow. And he, yeah, so well, like it just wasn't publicized. And then, so he comes out, and it, it becomes very quickly aware, uh, we become very aware, that Mike Reed doesn't know how to host anything. Mike Reed loves the sound of Mike Reed's voice, and Mike Reed goes full partridge immediately. Wow. Um, instead of asking him about anything, he starts asking about like his upbringing. He starts asking him about his family tree, like his ancestors. And apparently, like a great great granddad was the captain of a ship. And he said, um, "When when you think about these guys in your family, do you feel proud?" So what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> What is a man's what? some dude who we never met who died two hundred years before he was born? Why would he be proud of him? Uh, <laughs> he barely asks him about any of the films. They do talk about tennis for a really long time. Oh my! Like God. an excruciatingly what long time. 
And because uh, I I know that I know gals, you wanted to to talk about tennis, and there you go, there's your connection. Uh, okay. Chevy Chase it's loves tennis. Together. Chevy Chase barely remembers the films that he was in. Um, Mike Reed isn't helping. He keeps asking him about some real bullshit. Um, <laughs> the the, <laughs> yeah, the best bit like, is uh, would have been better. <laughs> so uh, towards the end of the interview, he just starts talking about all of his divorces. Mike Reed starts well, talking Mike about Reed all Chevy Chase's <laughs> divorces and asking her about, you know, you've you've been married a lot of times, haven't you? And they've all left you. <laughs> um, and then he talks hell? about uh, he talks about his his uh, cocaine habit, which oh, wow. oh, this is not what the audience wanted. Uh, he comes out of it quite humble. He's like, yeah, and and you know, I uh, I felt like I was you know, the, the king shit, and so yeah, that didn't help. He said it gave him a towering ego that he still has. But um, and then Mike Reed says, "Because you know we've got a lot of drugs problems here in London. Do you have a message out there for the kids?" <laughs> like, what, the f- what the hell is this? <laughs> right? Why is, this is a fifteen-year-old in Streatham gives a shit what Chevy Chase reckons because he once did some coke in the eighties in Hollywood? Um, and then he pulled out a guitar and tried to do one of the songs from the Three Amigos that Chevy Chase could not remember. I say a gun. No, he pulled out. He, he went Brent and he pulled out the guitar. He starts playing it. <laughs> Does, Chevy Chase doesn't remember the lyrics because it was a film that came out in nineteen ninety or whatever. Mike Reed also doesn't know the lyrics and nobody knows the lyrics, but he oh won't stop playing God. it. And then eventually they open the um, the the audience, they open the floor to whoever wants to ask a question. And instead of a question, one guy just yelled, Mike Reed, you're a twat. <laughs> well, and he got the biggest cheer of the night. And then Mike Reed wrapped it up uh, 15 minutes early because he was sad. Oh my God. Thank you, Springden. There will be no encore. <laughs> um, <Yeah>. and, <laughs> And that was that. So that was my evening with Chevy Chase. That that made like uh like the entertainment news across the world. I remember reading about this on like the AV Club and all these websites. They were like Chevy Chase has famously disastrous interview, and it's not even his fault. I'm wow. a bit gobsmacked. Well, Devlin, we've um, we've teased it long enough. Uh, would you mind giving us the uh, the plot of Memoirs of an Invisible Man? Memoirs of an Invisible Man. Uh, sardonic stock analyst Nick Halloway, Chevy Chase suffers a freak accident when he takes a hungover nap in the offices of a scientific foundation that then becomes invisible. Similarly afflicted, he falls into the clutches of CIA operative David Jenkins, Sam Neill, who intends to use Nick as the ultimate infiltration weapon. Scarpering, Nick escapes San Francisco to a friend's beach house, where chance brings him back in contact with the beautiful stranger, Daryl Hannah, he met the night before his fateful invisibling which is a word. Uh, <laughs> their feelings for each other develop as they go on the run from an increasingly deranged Jenkins and his agents, resulting in some genuinely regrettable blackface. <laughs> oh, God. I don't know what, what you guys uh, were expecting with the film when it opened up, but uh, what did you make of the opening sequence? Just to say it from the very beginning, I, was, I found the film was a little uh, uneven and I I thought it was a really good like you said Hitchcockian opener and a thriller kind of um, it was really interesting a cool special effect with the chewing gum and it was a really you know it, it's a catchy opening it definitely gets mm. your attention which did its job very do they well. call that uh, do they call that in me in media res so you call it when you come into a 
into a film while it's kind of in in action. Is that the phrase? I might be using it wrong. Immediate res. Practice of beginning an epic or other narrative by plunging into a crucial situation that is part of a related chain of events. The situation is an extension of previous events and will be developed in later action. It's very good, Devlin. Hey, I read a book once. Twice. (laughs) We all know you're a fucking nerd. It set up a, a film that I was really, really game for. I think Patrick is absolutely right. This Hitchcockian thriller that we're expecting. Uh, I love the reference to double indemnity with the him giving a memoir on a videotape, doing the almost like a confession, uh, confessional. Um, and, and he's already on the run, the agent. So everything seems to be set up for what I think is going to be a North yeah. by Northwest or a, uh, you know, to catch a thief. And, and then I think Patrick said it in a very diplomatic way. The film is quite yeah. uneven, but this particular opening also feels a very John Carpentery because I it think really it looks yeah. like a John Carpenter film with the with the contrast maybe just slightly dialed up, so we haven't got as many deeper darks as we might normally see. But other than that, it looks like a John yeah. Carpenter film. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm fully fully game in this opening sequence and I love the optical effects with the chewing yeah, gum it's, it's, being animated it's isn't it? and it's like a tease isn't it it's a, it's a, it's like a tease because obviously commenters withholding the the more uh technological effects for later on in the film do you reckon it's literally just um stop frame animation it looks like it is it's very good stop frame animation especially when the chewing gum actually bursts because that looks hyper real yeah. It's clever. It's very clever. Um and I I I love the um I love the score. I mean I know when we talk about Carpenter films, we're usually talking about his scores, but this one was uh by Shirley Walker, who I guess her, her biggest claim to fame was uh Batman the Animated Series. She used oh, wow. to do the music for that. But, um mm-hmm. uh which is cool because it's very unusual to get a, a a female composer sole credit on a film of this size and did you read the imdb trivia which obviously we have to take with a pinch of salt that said that this was the first female scored film really? like solely yeah i hope not because that is depressing because yeah. it's 1992 but either way i i really like the score it was um it's quite mm. bombastic but it's also got the mood of a, a film noir as well and i think it does a lot of the heavy lifting during some of the emotional sequences later yeah. on in the film um it kind of sells the romance and it, it kind of sells the those little just around the edges it's got that little those like horror hints especially when you get the big wide shot of the um the foundation as it's in flux and it's going to disappear do you think they open with this section though and with the visual effect because at the time it was quite groundbreaking and i think a lot of people wanted to be hooked well they knew that the audience would have wanted to be hooked by that at the beginning because that's what they come for more than anything. Yeah, I, I yeah, I think that's. Uh, I mean, you've you've got to make a big pitch to keep people uh, keep people in their seats. Well, I also think it's probably trying to tell the audience straight away this is not going to be Chevy Chase, Clark Griswold. He's not making gags as such in this opening sequence, and I do wonder if that threw people a little bit because I'm sure they probably would have been expecting a screwball comedy. The advertising. Especially the trailer leans leans really heavy, doesn't it? Makes makes it look like it's going to be a full comedy. Don't want the comedy, <laughs> whereas there's really more of that action. He's still quite dry though. His performance is very dry. 
I, I like the story device with the, him filming the memoirs, but I do kind of feel like it's apropos of nothing in the end. Yeah, it that's just being it, a yeah. thing. It should either be used as some form of metaphor or something. But by the end, it's literally just a. I made you a videotape to yeah, to make and a then it's the it's the classic um, maybe, you know, it's love, yeah love the, the classic thing of like if you don't do the thing that I want, this will be released to the press, which he also does at the end of Fletch. So, I mean, there's a lot of Fletch that gets dragged over into this mm-hmm. film. Whether it was in the book, I don't know. It does feel like he's reaching for the success that he's previously yeah. had, doesn't it? And then we're kind of introduced to Nick, aren't we? Um, he's at a desk. And he, I mean, he's definitely been to a tanning salon. But he looks <laughs> a lot like a mixture of Ron Burgundy <laughs> and Harrison Ford, is what I kept thinking in that opening <laughs> shot. But in the, in this film, we have an invisible man who later on the villain of the piece will describe as being invisible before yeah. he became invisible. Yet in the, in the opening couple of minutes of your film, I'm seeing a, a successful mm-hmm. businessman who everyone seems to like, who's quipping and, and kind of having fun. It doesn't really correlate. And it really threw me. Yeah. He has his own office. He has a secretary. He's a member of an exclusive gentleman's club. He gets the girl straight away as well. Well, he even says it when, when we're introduced to him, he's on the phone. And, you know, he's booking his skiing lodge. And he says, let's put a king-size bed in there because you never know. <laughs> so he's... he's. This is where it is, as you mentioned before, uh, uh, an ego piece as well, I think. He can't allow himself to be meek or, or, or put upon or kind of a little bit defeated. When we're talking about other 80s comedy guys who, who tried to get out of their lane, there's a Steve Martin movie called The Lonely Guy, which is... Uh, I think it's an Arthur Hiller directed film, but it's they're kind of going for like a Neil Simon sort of, you know, neurotic type comedy. And, and Steve Martin plays a lonely guy. And it's, there's this whole kind of subspecies of lonely men stalking the streets of New York. And um, he allows himself in that to be kind of, you know, beaten down, a bit pathetic. He's still funny. He still gets laughs out of it. But um, you would have thought that something like that immediately for what the plot is is trying to say about invisibility yeah you can't really have the the kind of quick-witted alpha male arsehole really i thought we were definitely going to get a groundhog day or a bruce almighty or a liar liar a kind of comedic film which has a moral tale to tell about a character who learns to change after receiving an extraordinary power like this opening setup where he's like this brash successful businessman i'm like i know where this film's going to go and if they nail it then this will be really fun. But unfortunately, Chevy Chase is totally mm. the wrong actor to tell that story that they eventually try and tell, which is of this guy who is introspective and is lonely and needs affection. <laughs> it does seem by the numbers to start with. Uh, I, I'm the same, Gally. I thought the same. And I figured that his character was set up for development and all of that. But it's... it's I said at the very beginning, it's a very uneven film. When he's in the gentleman's club, it kind of feeds into this idea that he's a bit of a loner, but then he goes to this exclusive gentleman's club where it's full of successful businessmen and he meets his his friend yeah. George, who throughout this whole film just wants to set his wife's mate up. That's all he wants to do, <laughs> and I love it. 
He just constantly got these eyes like, hey, come over. I've got a Daryl Hannah. <laughs> Do you want it? I've got, <laughs> I've got a Daryl Hannah. She's over here. In uh, in true Rewind movie podcast tradition, I decided to age check Chevy Chase mm-hmm. and Daryl Hannah at the time. Chase, 49. Do you want to have a guess at Daryl Hannah? Uh, I think a little late, maybe 30. She's 32, okay. so... I, it's not the most egregious. It's not Tommy Lee Jones and Ahesh. It remains the gold standard of what the fuck were they thinking? <laughs> that is the gold standard for the attempt of old and uh, and young. I do like the way that Carpenter kind of um, gets there. Listen, I don't think they've actually got much on-screen chemistry, but the, the way that it's shot gives you that yeah. impression, uh, especially when it cuts to the two, where it's just the two heads on the outside of the frame and they're just sort of spouting things that they like. It's a really quick shorthand way of kind of saying that these two are again yeah. on. I hate TV. Me too. I like music. I love jazz. Hate weightlifters. Narcissists. Love skiing. Love the ocean and the woods. Love blonde hair. Love garlic. I think Carol's testament, like half the film, she's acting against nothing. And I think she really sells it. I think she does a really good job. I've always liked her from from Splash for obvious reasons, but yeah, I think she's uh, she's great. Wow, well, she's a mermaid, dude. <laughs> Ariel is hot. <laughs> I think she brings a lot of splash into this, though. She's got a, mm. she's definitely a really likable screen presence, and I think the film's a lot better with, when she's on it because she draws you in. She's definitely a bit magnetic and. She's weird, which is which is good. She's got a whimsical quality. She likes cheeseburgers, and she's exotic, and she's smart. It's that thing of when um when you had Meg Ryan on Top Gun, you know, when she came in, you like her very much, and it's the same here with Daryl. And she is stunning as well, like just looks incredible. Which is why I don't really get why she went with Chase straight away, <laughs> straight into the bathroom. Yeah, oh, there's a couple of lines. There's one where he makes a prostitute mm. gag. Oh, yeah, yeah. Let's not do anything cheap. All right, what'll I owe you? Or something. It's always it's always quips and it's always comebacks and it's always like shtick. And if they're going with like a like a noir kind of hard boiled thing, then that would make sense. But it's just they're really frothy. They're a bit throwaway. It's foreplay. We should get back. Yeah, yeah, we should get back. Let's not do anything cheap and meaningless. Okay, what do I owe you? (laughs) You're good enough for it. I actually thought that Daryl Hannah was going to be a kind of femme fatale. I thought she was going to end up being like turning on Nick. Did you guys ever get that? Or was that just me that would just have been, wish, wishing? That would have honestly been great. I really didn't get that at all. Only because she's she like lights up the room. She's in this white dress. Her surname yeah. is Monroe. I think it's Alice Monroe. And, uh, yeah. and I just thought how interesting it would be that she would end up like siding with the villain. They had, she had no cause to. He's not an invisible man. 
Oh, I know, but I just, no, I just thought maybe like I don't know for a next documentary something like if she turned him in because she wants to study him herself and feel just something like that. But it ended up yeah. not happening, and she ends up just becoming a very conventional for the time, especially love interest. No, it's it's that it's that single uh, trope from the time is here's the love interest. It makes the lead actor look good because she's beautiful, and you know he wants yeah. to be made to look good. Uh, off you go. I wonder if Ghost, you remember Swayze and Demi Moore? I wonder if that had maybe a little bit of a part to play because some of the jokes that later on that um, Chase will do, I'm thinking when he's in the beach house with the with the guy who's like looking like he might rob it and then he does the, oh, the yeah. boo or the get out of here kid. That's hey, all hey, straight. Hey, dickwad. That's all straight from Ghost. So I kind of wondered if that maybe loomed large just because that, that mm. film made just so much money and it was only two years previous I, it's one of the the few echoes that it has with another carpenter film as well i guess that um the sort of genre film protagonist male gets together with a regular human woman like from starman although the the perspective is very much flipped so in, in starman we're kind of following karen allen and she's our uh, our protagonist and Jeff Bridges is, you know, a, a spaceman. Um, but the, it's it's their kind of their connection is the thing that kind of saves them both. And um, but this this doesn't really carry the same amount of weight as that. No, nor does it in say Big Trouble in Little China, <laughs> where you've got a. I think this a lot of a lot of the issues that we're going to probably discuss in this film does come down to. Does does the director and the act and the lead actor have the same vision for the story mm. that they're trying to tell? And and say something like Big Trouble in Little China, where you've got Kurt Russell and John Carpenter, and Kurt Russell clearly trusts John Carpenter's judgment, and 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 obviously thinks, you know what, you're not going to make me look a fool, and we're actually going to do something interesting about this archetypal white male action hero in this kung fu yeah. setting. And I just think if Chevy Chase was serious about becoming a dramatic actor then he should have just trusted the person mm. that really knew what he was talking about, which is John Carpenter. And I, th- I think you're right in that like, it is a lack of, of trust. Because if you look at times where actors have sort of subverted their kind of ego and their, their persona to a director who knows what they're doing, if you look at like, um, like Bruce Willis in 12 Monkeys or something, kind of mm. undercutting the, the, the smug action hero stuff and, and kind of being really vulnerable and... and uh, and sad and weird and it works for and it works for both of them you know it elevates the film and it and it and it's a great performance so yeah you don't really get that i find trevor chase's acting in this just almost unreadable because he's so placid and yeah he, he is completely so I, i've never it's, no idea what's going on in his head I, th- I think you're right because he, he's clearly trying to like short circuit his instincts to go for the laugh yeah. all the time, but yeah. he's not replacing it with much. No, not at all. No, not he's not all. introspective. Not at all. No. And when you've got something so lively and energetic as Daryl Hannah, that is bringing real, you know, emotion to the screen, I think. And he's, he's just a brick wall. She's bouncing yeah. off really. Even his hangover acting the next day is not very good. But yeah, so uh, a, a hungover Chevy Chase stumbles into uh, a, a tech firm 
what I like is that we're never really told much about it whatsoever. And Patrick, I can only imagine you were fucking thrilled to see who was delivering this lecture. Oh, I'm glad you noticed. I'm glad. <laughs> Did Galley notice? I wonder. Dr. Bernard Watt, he, Jim Norton, <laughs> Bishop Brennan. I've got to kick Bishop Brennan up the arse. <laughs> Don't call me Len, you little prick. <laughs> Jim Norton, man. Yeah, couldn't believe it when I saw him. I didn't recognise him at all. At all. Obviously, Jim, I knew oh. him for the uh, crew, but yeah, no, I did not spot him at all. Oh, I leapt oh, up when yeah. I saw him. He's in a rush, man. I leapt up when I saw Sam Neill's name in the credits, because I had no idea. Yeah. Like, mm. Some nice surprises in the cast in this film. And... Um, Jim Norton adding his thespian chops to it. He doesn't have a great deal to do, but I mean, he brings the he brings a shouty a shouty Irish gravitas, and it's very welcome. <laughs> uh, going going back to the accident, I do like the way that it is just a pure goof. You know, yeah. it's just some coffee being spilled on a computer that creates some fireworks, which then it's like an anomaly that can't be replicated. And and I do like that because it just means that then the film doesn't need to muck about with any pseudo science. It can just be like this. Were, do they say that this there's some nuclear material in the building? And that maybe is it. They yeah, just go, yeah, that's it. Because anything anything you could try and come up with would just be dumb as fuck. So it's but doesn't he say well, there's a great line? Where he's like, I want my molecules back. Yeah. <laughs> I think it. I think it sets us up with the t- the the pace of the film as well because it's quite it's quite a quick paced film. Mm, at this point, it's it is like, rattling through. Boom, introduce character, introduce character, introduce her, he's hung over, bang, now he's invisible. Yeah. And it's this this is great, isn't it? We're then introduced to Sam Neill in a kind of pretty forgettable scene, but it immediately tells you everything you need to know about this guy. He really loves throwing people off buildings in foreign hotels. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's a little off uh, offline remark about what he's been doing in some foreign country with some dignitary. He's he's like a CIA, but it says he's an operative. But is he paid by the CIA? But he's not a part of it. I always feel like his team are, are sort mm. of not mercenaries, but they're um, they're like a they're not elite either. Christ, but if it, what's black ops? Is that a thing where you'd like you're yeah, on but operations, but you're not, are... but you're not supposed to be? I think they're set up as the CIA, aren't they? And and what I found quite ironic is obviously Sam Neill did. Uh, audition to play James Bond. So I saw this character as just like an evil version right. of Bond. He's sort of reckless. Or a Bond villain. Driven. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but he's like playing it like a Bond villain, but he's still got that suave... You know what it is? It's that gelled hair with a little mm. thread coming down the eye. The thing is, I don't think Sam Neill's got much to do in this film, to be honest, because I think the writing's not great for him. It's, it's true. No, but he does what, he, he, does what he can to Sam make Neil. an impression. Yeah. It's just repetitive, repetitive. If it wasn't him... This character would be uh, a nothing. The fact that he's the fact that he's kind of, you know, Sam Neill can get real weird, and he did with John Carpenter a few years later in uh, in the Mouth of Madness. He can get really weird oh, yeah. when he has to, and you can just see like the edges, just around the edges yeah. of his portrayal is like a, a, a barely contained kind of mania. Well, it's, I think it's his second scene that I like the most from him when he, I'm skipping just over the accident mm-hmm. and when he faces off. With uh, with Nick Halloway, and it, mm-hmm. he's instructing his men to circle. Yeah, him. I think Sam Neill does some really good stuff in that in that face off there because I, I I think the film has some really good moments where the actors are playing against nothing and their performances are pretty yeah. good. 
And Sam Neill yeah. doing that when he and he's talking to Nick Holloway and explaining and trying to double cross. I think that that's where Sam uh, Sam Neill really brings yeah. his uh, quality. I love the repeated gag of like him always being off eye line. <laughs> yeah, like later on when, yeah. when he can when, uh, <laughs> right. when, when Nick's in his office and he he thinks he's knocked him down on the floor and he's pointing down straight straight in front of him <laughs> yeah. and it's like do you don't screw with me and Chevy Chase is literally right next to him on his left. <laughs> yeah, they they all feel like the moments that a real carpenter touches, don't they? They're just there's, there's another one about the, the running gag with them shooting, uh, missing, and hitting innocence in the back of the neck. <laughs> yeah. Just, every, every time it just got a got a laugh out. Jim of me. Norton every gets time. in the back of the neck yeah. as well. Yeah, it's so good. In fact, when Jim Norton gets in the back of the neck, I swear he leaps in front of Nick. Face he does, on. yeah. And then you can see in the scene in Jurassic Park, the famous scene with the kid where he's like, show a bit of respect. He's basically doing the same thing in this where you, he's there's something about Sam Neill, even though um, on Twitter, he seems like a lovely man. But he's got a little devil in him, hasn't he? Well, my dad was convinced he was the devil <laughs> for many years. Really? Honestly, my, my dad... My dad was scared of Sam Neill when we were. Did he watch? Up, um, he like, did he watch like the Possession? He watched Event Horizon and Event Horizon, yeah, yeah. and he was like, "That man is possessed." <laughs> <laughs> did you see in the in the 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 chat that Tobolowsky and the, uh, Sam Neill have where they say that they need to get to uh, the I can't even remember the name of the company, the Magnoscopics or something, but um, that it's in uh, yeah. Santa yeah. Mira, which is the fictional town from Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And subsequently, oh, mine yeah. and yours oh. favorite film, Halloween Three: Season of the Witch. Halloween Three. I was gonna say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's a few common to touches, isn't there? The taxi driver from Big Trouble in Little China. There's a couple of other mm. smaller roles. And himself. Oh, John. Pilot. Pilot. He's the helicopter pilot in this. Yeah, he's one of the. Yeah, I spotted that one. Too. He's he's showing off because he can actually pilot a helicopter. <laughs> yeah, he can. Cool. God, he's bloody. He's, he's another Cameron, and he guys do everything <laughs> well, bastard. I just love that. I didn't know it. It was you, Devlin, who told me that he wrote his own scores, and I just was right. I was oblivious to that. And that always amazes me. Like Clint Eastwood when he writes his own scores yeah. as well. I love that shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. I can't help but feel like there's a lot on the cutting room floor in this film, and I do wonder if there was more CIA stuff. That maybe mm. we there was a few more scenes with Sam Neill that maybe threw a bit of shade, or at least gave him a little bit more motivation than. It's... Or maybe those scenes yeah. were just similar shit, which is why they're not mm. there because it's just monotonous motive. It's... But to me, that feels like a Carpenter piece because he's always been someone who places himself slightly outside, and I just think about like him coming off They Live and even Halloween. He tends to be quite pointed with institutions and with authorities. And the CIA are quite an easy target for this because they're basically shown to be bumbling fools who uh, have got nothing but nefarious uh, motives. And that's it. There's nothing good that comes from it. Maybe it was there in in other drafts. Apparently, the majority of the, um, the, the Alice character, as far as I'm aware, that was added later on because they felt that they needed more of an emotional hook. Um. I, I've not read the book. Um, the book, though, may explain. So it was why... more of a Hitchcock man on the yeah man on the run. I think so. story. Then um, uh, yeah. what, I, what I did learn from the, from the the book was that it was written by a, a first and only time novelist called H. F. Saint 
and he was a uh, financial analyst, which is why his lead character is a financial analyst. Uh, he he was, uh, and also like the character. If you notice, the character of Richard is, I think, the same thing. And then he's a broker, he, running? yeah, that's he's a broker. it. And then he says, "You're a broker, yeah, but only until my novel is finished." And then, uh, so oh, HF Saint made enough money off this to just not do anything anymore. I think he got like four million or something, and didn't bother writing another book. Happy days. Wow. Um, but yeah, maybe maybe there was a lot more of like you say that kind of man on the run, like uh, a constructed you know set piece to set piece to set piece, and they they hollowed a lot of that out so that they could kind of force in a a, a more emotional through line with the relationship with alice it is quite a tight film anyway though isn't mm. it it's quite a pacey yeah. film it only really slows down to explore that relationship between the two of them on the beach mm. um that's when it kind oh, of it grinds to a halt on. though at that point though it does like, yeah you mentioned it before patrick and i mean it, it's a wonderful wonderful sequence the swiss cheese building the when yeah. when when it wakes up that that effect with the building, it's just how creative, how imaginative. And I wonder, Devlin, if this is the kind of thing that you as a child probably were like, this is fantasy stuff, isn't yeah. it? Because we haven't really talked about it, but the idea of being invisible is like, it's definitely a kid's thing, you know, playing hide and seek. Mm-hmm. And, and what could you do if you were invisible? Obviously, most of the time we'll talk about Hollow Man, but it seems <laughs> to be that male adults tend to go down the, the sort of skeevy route. But as a child, you just think about the endless possibilities of, you know, you could do whatever you want. And I think even in the film, they mentioned you could go see whatever film you want to see or go to any ball game, yeah. whatever. But this building, how clever. And it looks amazing. It's, it, it is. is uh... and, the, and the most amazing, the best thing about it is when you get the POV wake up and you see it, you, you are confused. Like, mm-hmm. as he is, which is a really, which is great. Yeah. for the audience because there's when he when he, he wakes up and he says and... uh he was in a nightmare and nothing yeah. made sense it's like it's yeah. exactly what it is it's really crazy you have and... to work it out don't you You're like what the fuck is going ah yeah. and then you figure it out it's just it's a really wonderful visual thing that set is incredible mm-hmm. and it's physical yeah. and it's amazing i love that they're uh they're putting like orange yeah. tape around all the invisible walls so yeah. you can see the 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 edges of the building and there's a cool effect of them you know, like standing on the ground and scanning it, but underneath them it's concave and yeah, it's really cool. When you, I think this is the stuff that really, really, really struck me when I was a kid. It's all these little creative decisions like this. This. Well, do you want to talk about the visual effects for a bit? The ones that really stand out to me are uh, this one. This whole sequence is is fantastic. Yeah. There's um, uh, later on when he's uh, smoking. And, and you see the, the, lungs. the smoke fills the lungs and then exhales. And right at the end, there's a very last shot where the smoke that he exhales blows back and just gives you the very, very, very shaded outline of his face. Yes. As he's yeah, talking. Yeah. And it's like. It's a reference to the 1940 Invisible Man Returns, I think it is. Oh, right. Uh, they, do, uh, they, do, they do that effect, but with real smoke. Yeah. And I still actually have no idea how they did Jeez, it, but yeah. um, it looks better in this. There's a few direct nods to the old Universal mm. Invisible Man uh, films, yeah, and and that's just one of them. But it looks great. Uh, I, I I'm surprised you're not mentioning it. Maybe we'll get to it a bit later. But I also love the sort of Spielbergian rain sequence as well, yeah. which is um, kind of magical. I think my my favorite is the um, the the makeup though. 
The makeup's insane. And like of the... course, it allows for the, the, the sight gag when he wipes off a bit of his mouth. The film's quite quite meticulous with its detail, with mm-hmm. those, those things and those laws and stuff. There's when he takes off the bandages to reveal himself to her. You get to see the other side of the bandages, yeah. the back of the head. That's a real, yes. Yes. really it's... impressive effect for the time. And it is. I, it that, is. That took me like, a surprise a bit because I was really stunned by that. The same year, you have T2 Judgment Day and ILM and the same team. Yeah, they go in. They had a, they had more money for one, and uh, and I think also John Carpenter, director for hire versus James Cameron, who is just a meticulous engineer. They create the T1000, and then a year later, Spielberg used the same technology to uh, bring dinosaurs to life. And it kind of, unfortunately, the film doesn't really get the same recognition. Because I was even thinking Mm -hmm. about, like, Twister, which is not a good film. I enjoy it because it's kind of fun and goofy, but it's pretty... (laughs) It's pretty rubbish, it's, it's and, uh, and people still, you know, people still talk about the effects in Twister, but they should be talking about the effects in yeah. Memoirs and Invisible Man because this is and groundbreaking well, stuff. There's, looks amazing. When he's jogging on the beach, it's yeah, incredible. that's great. Just uh, the, I mean, the it's silly bands, because yeah. it, there's a whole sequence before it when he's talking about I want to, I need to eat invisible clear food so I'm not yeah. seen, and then he jogs on a beach in clothes <laughs> where he can be seen, which is really silly but the effect is unbelievable mm. i think it's the presentation of it as much as anything else is knowing when to withhold it and just every now and then you do this one thing and it's really really impressive but it's never they don't dwell on it too much i don't feel like they're ever doing things just to do them to show off that they can like the when she's uh when she's painting oh i don't know the running on the beach okay yeah that one is that's just a that's a and the, and the that's a visual gag but the when they when they're doing the makeup uh onto his face and he's got the sheet wrapped around him and he's literally just a, yeah, a hovering yeah. face and he looks like the the comedy tragedy mask like um there's you know and his and his eyes are missing and his mouth is missing and you can see the back of it it's um it's like a real yeah it's it's one of the few times where there's a really kind of a real emotional core to it. Yeah, there's that sequence as well when he's running away from the CIA after he's uh, bumped into Jim Norton and he's taking the trousers yeah, off yeah. and running and dress it. That is. <laughs> I love the mecha- well. the obvious, the very obviously mechanical trousers. They're yeah, really funny. Like it's just it's a uh, like that sort of stuff. These kind of absurdist visual gags. There's, I think, like you say, it's 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 a little frustrating. The the tone that the tones just never mesh. They sort of fight against each other because if you could just push everything up, just bring the energy levels up just a little, uh, you'd have this fantastic kind of mishmash. Like you're allowed to be funny in a chase film, uh, and yeah, it, it would be nice to see a little more of that. Although there are some very good visual gags. The one blight in that whole building sequence stuff where the the battle lines are drawn sam neill's actually a villain after him and we we start the chases the voiceover which started fine as in to to set a film noir mood but it eventually started to really great on me and ended up just mm. feeling like audio description because he ends up just saying stuff like i picked up the phone i couldn't make the phone call i then went over to the yeah. mirror we're watching him do this i had to think what was real and what wasn't where was my hand? I couldn't see my hand. Oh, God. What had happened to me? I needed help. But who? I had to call somebody. And then I knew. It wasn't just the building. It was me. 
Jesus. I walked over to the mirror. I was right. There was no reflection. My body, my clothes, everything was gone. I was invisible. I think yeah, I think you're probably right that it was probably just that the the pace of it just just lagged. Like it's it's a we've we've all spoken about that it's this beautiful and really impressive and really weird scene, but yeah, just a dude walking around in silence during a really pivotal moment where we yeah, you're probably right. He's not he's not giving us panic. He's not giving us like existential dread. He's just sort of ambling around. What do you think about the decision to make to actually have him on the screen? half the time I, I thought that was actually quite clever for whatever we say about chevy yeah. chase he's the star of the film i mean i think he got paid like six million dollars for this you're not going to pay him six million dollars to just wow, do really? an audio that much performance money? yes <laughs> i believe yeah it's crazy you, you're going to need to see him on screen i guess the problem is that when we do see him on screen he gets outdone. He gets out Buster Keaton by this little known actor from new zealand like when he does all the physical stuff later on I was like wishing that was Jim Carrey, someone who just had a bit more energy and a bit more timing. You know, when he's trying to put his hand in the sleeve, yeah. I was groaning. I was just like, oh, yeah. this is not funny. Well, the time that he excels in it is when he, um, when he gets, hails the cab to San Francisco yeah, with the drunk guy. <laughs> oh, the Weekend at Bernie's sequence. I did find that funny. That is a really say. funny sequence. But then I love Weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> it's a really funny yeah. sequence. Like, the phys- like you just said there, the physicality. It's actually a different actor that we're referring to, but the physicality. I know. He's, and- again, it's not Chase, yeah. is it? It's the other guy. It is, it's brilliant. It's bloody funny. I was, I was cracking up at that. But it's when he drags <laughs> yeah. it. Into- <laughs> You're <still> completely <laughs> diagonal. That's <laughs> really good. That's, that's the funniest scene in the film for me, though. That was the one that got the most mm. laughs from me. So the first 15, 20 minutes... I'm with the film, even though I think tonally it's slightly a bit of a mishmash. Then we have about, we have the park sequence, which I really loved, which brings me back up. But in between that, we've just got someone moping around. And I was, I'm not going to lie, a bit bored. I was was thinking to myself, like we've already said that being invisible, kind of like a childhood fantasy. Why aren't you having much fun with it? And they have a montage where... He saves, he rescues some old lady's bag. Oh yeah, which is another good gag. It's a good gag, but why aren't we getting more of that? Instead, he's just sort of moping around. That gag's designed around him moping though, isn't it? Because he's almost nonchalantly bored by it. And the whole point is he doesn't want to be invisible. Yeah. So, but but it doesn't come across well enough. And again, I think it's performance and I don't think it's well written. They go go for stuff. They go that little bit where he's standing next to the hot dog cart and he realizes that he can't eat anything. But actually, I I didn't get the boredom until he got to the beach house, Hmm. Scully. I was all right until then. Just before then, he has his dream sequence, of course, where... Oh, oh yeah. God, yeah. Actually, that dream sequence. Oh. Just... <laughs> I, I quite like it, but it's also very much, uh, oh, it's a Chevy Chase movie. Remember, you things that Chevy Chase likes include tennis, blonde women with large breasts, uh, and the, pro- the prospect of Chevy Chase being applauded when walking into a room just for existing. Because he does it in Fletch as well. When he walks into the, the newspaper office in Fletch, everyone does the old fucking Casey Ryback. Hey, Fletch is here. Fletch, everybody, come look at Fletch. I was flabbergasted. I've got to say, this was one of the most <laughs> narcissistic things I've ever seen. And again, <laughs> later on in the film, his friend even yep. describes him as a narcissist. Apart from that dream sequence, mm. we've not seen it. 
to me, I'm watching Chevy Chase. I'm not watching yeah. Nick Hollow- uh, Holloway. It could have been Holloway. Ooh, different film. But no, instead, it's just Chevy Chase on screen. And I can't believe that John Carpenter no, he no, didn't no. get final cut on this. There's no I, way he has. And I don't think he got much no input way. into Chevy at all, I think. Um, but, but John, I think Carpenter definitely has a visual style mm. in the film. And, it, you know, it's. I think it's directed solidly and... His his Looks scene construction, oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah. and I think is the, yeah. the editing is like it's it's not flashy, it's not choppy, it's not in your it flows like you say it, it the the pace sags because of story problems, but as as a film, it's pretty fleet. It does kind of you know it moves along at a nice pace. But we are coming up to our favorite character in the film. Yeah, who <laughs> Dick? <laughs> so great. Oh god, Richard. Oh, so um, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna ask you now, which British theatre actor are we gonna sort of subscribe that Richard is channeling? Because I had a bit of Jeremy Irons and a bit okay. of Julian Sands, but the voice straight out of Family Guy. <laughs> Family yeah. Guy, that's what I wrote down. That's what I wrote down. Mm, yes. Oh, I'm ready to have sex now. <laughs> it is. I mean, it's outrageous. This is what Americans must think that we are like. So when they go to, I don't know, Hull, they must oh, just get horrified. Like you said about Family Guy, you associate his character with New England rather than San Francisco. So he's a very, he's just a weird archetype in there for, I don't know, it, it's obviously playing up to uh, the money yeah. in the background that they all have. But he's... But then we get another really strange, out of the blue joke on the beach, <laughs> where um, yeah. Mike, Michael McKean prematurely ejaculates right, right on <laughs> Ray Romano's wife. <laughs> and, and this is where, where I started to from? think to myself: nine, nine-year-old Devlin. I, th- is I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> we've got a premature ejaculation. I think that's. Where did that I come think this, from? This... Does he say like? Well, I think this is probably where I. Doesn't he say, give me yeah, 10 minutes? Yeah, just look at the moon or something. <laughs> oh, that is such a great line. Just look at the moon. <laughs> um, yeah, that it's it's bizarre. weird that Michael McKean's character gets chipped away at so much, you know, because we don't really know much about him. I guess he's, he's just supposed to be like his, Nick's kind of frenemy, kind of obnoxious guy. He actually has good intentions, doesn't yeah. he? Because he comes to his aid at the end for good re- moral reasons. Mm. And if you didn't, if you had that sequence, but you didn't have like Richard being weird and Michael McKean <laughs> prematurely ejaculating, <laughs> um, what would you have? Because we've already said the film's not going very deep. It's not really. It's not mining the territory of like this is what it's like to be, you know, invisible and lonely. So, Devlin, can yeah. I? Can I? Can I forcibly disagree? Go on then. Because actually, even though the beach house is where the film grinds to a halt, it's actually got one scene which I thought was like, this is the film that I'd be really interested in. When Chevy Chase is hearing what other people think of him, it's the one one moment where I was like, you know what? Despite the fact that I'm not a big fan of you, I'm sympathizing with you. And I just thought, how interesting would it be to have has got an idea of what they think people believe they're like and actually it's the complete opposite and again it was feeding into this idea that i thought at the beginning of the film which is here's a guy who's obnoxious mm-hmm. yes who's arrogant and is going to come down to earth and make a, a change because he realizes that actually he's a bit of a dickhead but he should yeah. have been more scrooge it's a ghost <laughs> of christmas present and it yeah. should have been that i think carpenter's into it because we stay with it 
it's it's not flashy, but it's really funny. I spoke to a little pencil pusher at some government agency I never heard of. He asked me the same sorts of personal questions about Nick the SEC did when Charlie Randolph got busted. A lot of confusion over at Shipway and Whitman. The guy's been working there for 10 years like that, suddenly disappears. Roger Whitman's got auditors over there day and night looking to see if anything's missing. Do you really think he's a thief? Didn't strike me as the embezzler type. Knowing Nick, he probably came here to shack up with somebody's wife. Hmm? Yeah, honey, if that's all it was, he would have called me. Listen, why don't we just change the subject? Wherever the hell he is, I'm sure Nick would love to know that we're talking about him. I think Calloway got in a lot of trouble, came out here, got himself nice and loaded, and just walked into the ocean one day. Oh, come on. Nick's way too narcissistic to kill himself. He'll probably wash up on the shore one day, all bloated and eaten by crabs. Richard! <laughs> How can you say these things? I thought you were Nick's friends. It's just, I don't know. I got a real funny vibe, like he's dead. All builds to that fucking great gag where Richard just says something like, Nick, are you here? Uh, yeah. <laughs> what does he say? He says he, feel, he feels like he's like, passed away. He doesn't feel like he's there anymore. I've just got like this. That. I've just got this crazy feeling, like he's mm, dead. Yeah. <laughs> he's dead, and then he stands up and he pulls his trousers down, <laughs> and he's got the tightest budgie smugglers, <laughs> and it's brilliant. They should have explored this a bit, yeah. more, a bit more poltergeist. Like, well, I just felt like I was actually getting a bit of character, mm, Christmas yeah. Carol stuff. It should have been like that. It should have been more yeah. of that, but they they literally the one scene. And then it just has the jealousy with her. That that's all it developed was his jealousy of Richard over yeah. her. Even though Richard yeah. has that great line with the champagne. I was saving this for when I read my first novel. <laughs> <laughs> Brings that champagne. Oh, and then he starts. <laughs> then that's it. Just my crying. wife left me three months ago. I'm a mess. <laughs> <laughs> The way he just like jumps on it. I need you. <laughs> <laughs> Did any of you also think at the beginning when the the building that had been caused to be partially invisible, mm. you know, when it fully becomes invisible and disappears and it's this big thing, big yeah. visual thing that distracts so many other things. I thought that was telling us that he only has a certain amount of time while this lasts. You would think, right? Yeah. Yes, I Patrick. thought that was I... what was going on. I thought it was a ticking, but that that went by the wayside. Ticking clock, yeah. It's nothing. No, I think that would have, and that would have really upped the dramatic stakes because yeah. yeah. then he would have had it. to have found a cure or done something, yeah. and maybe even like you said, again, it plays into that. It's a wonderful life, Scrooge element yes. where right, you've only got so many, yeah. you've only got so many the days on this earth, so you're yeah. gonna have to make a change, yeah. But it does again doesn't go there because Ch- whether it's Chase doesn't want to go down that route and he actually just wants to stay in his lane because he he says he wants a more dramatic role. I think it's there. The, the the building blocks are there, but the film never commits, and I don't think it's Carpenter. It's got to be Chase, right? It's got to be the studio. I don't know. It's it's just such a missed opportunity. But there there is a, a towards the end of of this little the little beach house, Sir John. There's another kind of we get reminded of just how quickly like John Carpenter can conjure up an atmosphere with just one shot. You know when uh, they're over at the 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 second beach house, the grey beach house that he's moved into and the helicopters are all sw- kind of swarming in to uh, Michael McKean's house and uh, uh, Chevy looks through the, the binoculars and you've just got smoke billowing through a, a hot spotlight 
and like and then the dogs just start like uh uh you know running across the beach at them uh immediately that's like a little it's another one of those kind of jolt of energy moments like you remember that this film is actually supposed to be kind of exciting mm. yes. yes yeah no i i do think he's he's working with with not a lot carpenter well he's, he's fighting with he chevy isn't he yeah, I, I think so. And I think um, I did a little bit of research on the set. I think I read an interview with Carpenter where he described actually working with Chevy Chase and Daryl Hannah as being a nightmare. Um, oh, and, and we and haven't mentioned, we, yeah, yeah, we haven't mentioned it yet, but there is a, a very strange HBO documentary <laughs> hosted by Chevy Chase on the set About of tennis. the film, which is, no, no, it's, it's on the set of oh, the sure. film. It, he does. He did, no, he discusses skiing though, um, and he um, <laughs> it's it's got a weird, weird bit with Mel Gibson driving around yeah. uh, the studio, which is just the strangest thing. And um, and in that, you get a glimpse into how they create the special effects. You also get a glimpse of Carmen to directing on set, which is actually for any kind of cinephile is quite invaluable. But what you do see is you see him get a bit short with them. Uh, there's one when they're in bed together after they've had. Um, Invisible sex, <laughs> uh, and and she sort of says, any, she sort um, of says oh, any, any comments? Uh, any comments on the technique there? As that is your forte. Uh, <laughs> well, how many psi was he? <laughs> uh, should should have been normal. Should have been normal. Um, but no, uh, I think I, I. So would his semen be invisible as well? Oh, it's a good question. Well, I mean, they. Well, his his, his beard is invisible. Because and mm, his that's beard is growing. Yeah, yeah I'm going to say no because it's it's not something that has been external <laughs> and entered in. And they kind of they, they kind of do set up the rules, don't they? A little bit with anything that gets digested, yeah, and yeah becomes yeah. invisible. So they, I, I'm going to go with it's invisible jism. But the um, <laughs> but you see you see Carpenter get short with them on set. He's like, yeah, yeah, shut up, let's let's shoot. Yeah. It's just quite an interesting insight. Right. You, you don't get much. But you get a little interesting insight, and we'll uh, we'll link it to the show notes uh, to the YouTube um, link, so you can watch it if you're interested. Oh, I want to watch that. I missed it's that. 30, it's only, yeah, it's only thirty minutes, but it's quite uh, it's quite an insight into Chase and the mood of the set because he he's, he gets a little bit spiky with mm. some of the crew members as well. Oh, you right, can you can you can see uh, uh, Chevy Chase uh, literally directing other actors in the middle of the scene. Like yes. right there on set, telling other actors what to do, basically oh, blocking how it all. Annoying. After the beach house, we we pretty we go pretty full on, don't we? Mm. Like to the end. I think what like I think we're in like twenty twenty five minutes left, something like that. I think we are rattling through towards the conclusion. When they do get on the train, Carpenter's kind of pretty restrained in this as well. Like you said, his scene construction is very um, not functional. Makes it sound like it's not it's not flashy. It's just not flashy. He's not drawing attention to himself but there is one particular shot which just had me creaming and it's the bit where daryl hannah's going through the doors and all the ladies screaming and you see sam neill's yeah well uh, willie beeman um and you see <laughs> sam neill's reflection and it's yeah awesome. that is great i was isn't like it? oh that is that is such a, and, and it's a hitchcock shot oh it's amazing i was like that is great we're about to come up to blackface <laughs> 
Every time this film gets a little God. lull, they pull me back in. God <laughs> the blackface <laughs> is outrageous. God damn it. Late 80s, early 90s. <laughs> in fact, the entire 80s in and most of the 90s. Places, so. He did. Hit That one's worse. <laughs> If you are easily offended by Chevy Chase's uh, short stint as a as blackface, then uh, please do not seek out Soul Man, which is currently on Amazon Ooh. Prime, where oh he does it for the entire film. <laughs> it's just crazy. <laughs> Watch C. Thomas Howell in 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 horrendous uh, blackface <laughs> makeup, uh, yelling like really offensive racial stereotypes in front of um, Leslie Nielsen. The thing is, it's so odd because it's 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 unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Like he doesn't need to. You just need a baseball cap whole, down. He's got like a, is it a turban? Just... He's got the beads on. Maybe they don't even yeah. look in the cab, so it doesn't matter. They just lo- they just gag. love doing it. That's that's the problem. They really just love doing it. I don't know the man. You've seen him live <laughs> in concert, but that doesn't strike me as a carpenter decision. Oh no, because no, I just no. don't think he would. Well, go again, there. you've got you've got the the Fletch thing, like. Uh, uh, from Fletch, he's you know he, he keeps getting into like unnecessary disguises and that. I I've not seen Fletch lives in a long time. None of the ones that he does in Fletch, the first one, are anywhere near as bad as this, except for the bit when he has a basketball dream sequence. Do you remember when like he 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 has a dream that he's a member of the Lakers and he's got a a, a large Afro wig on and I just, yeah I just think they love doing it. I just think they think it's inherently funny. And then we're basically it. Then we're in the final. We're in the final act, and um... yeah, because well, they they catch him immediately. So the subterfuge is is very short lived, and then mm-hmm. and then you get the you yeah. know the the disembodied head of Chevy Chase running through the streets, which, which is actually quite funny. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's uh, you know, uh, and then you know, wash himself off, and then that's it. I I do like the um the effect that they do of uh, after he gets wet and he falls into the dust on his jacket and then he gets into the the elevator it's another one of those times where like a really really subtle effect which is some dust clinging to an invisible jacket yeah it just looks really nice like it's really it's well totally, done you yeah. can see the light coming through the grate in the in the thing and it's really realistic and um it's it's a very it's it's another time when they went subtle when they could have gone quite big and it's 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 really helped out the scene but but yeah you just end up with a you, it reveals too quickly that Chevy Chase is holding the blazer out. I, I totally agree. I actually, watching it again, looking at the the, the way that the scene's constructed, I was like, no, you, you save that for when Daryl Hannah's searching for the bodies. Like, I would play it completely as in they fall and you think both of them have gone. Feels like such mm. an unsatisfying ending. Two, he's, listen, he's not been a great villain, but I mean, he deserved better than that. And even the one-liner... What's he say? Olay. Olay, you son what of a bitch. Lame ass line. Yeah. You couldn't have come up with something better than that. He's supposed to be a comedian. <laughs> that is a damning yeah. indictment. It just felt really powder puff that that yeah. that line, this ending. And and you're right, it's so quick. Like I think his boss then comes in and says, Oh, we lost his mind. We just couldn't help him. Get rid of everything. No one needs to know yeah. anything. He goes to Daryl Hannah and just says, Forget everything. Mm-hmm. And then that is it and then yep. well, what they walk nick reveals himself to her a little yep. bit too casual on the walk away i mean i wouldn't put my arm around him just yet but hey ho <laughs> and then um and then, and then the one of other one of the other things that chevy chase likes <laughs> to do which is to ski so uh, of course. and they're running they're running the credits right over it as well it's like 
Yeah. yeah. It's like the film is done. This is postscript. Well, I hate to hate to leave it on a, on a bit of a downer, but yeah, that is it. That is Memoirs of an Invisible Man. Yeah. So, Devlin, it was your choice, mm-hmm. and hopefully we've tried to be somewhat balanced. Yeah. So, I asked the question, does Invisible Man hold up? And uh, would you recommend it to our listeners? And uh, yeah, did you did you waste your time with it when you were nine years old? Um, right. I had uh, I had a I had a lovely time watching this multiple multiple times when I was a youngster. So I, mean, I don't regret that. Um, after all we've said and all of the very very valid criticisms about the uh, tonal problems and the, uh, the the to be honest, considering this was a film that I only watched a lot because apparently I was well into Chevy Chase's shtick at that time. Um, he is kind of the weak link, but I still think that this is a really frothy light easy watch that i would be happy to watch again um there's enough uh craftsmanship in there uh it it, it kind of it mostly kind of floats along a relatively uh relatively nice pace it gets bogged down here and there but um i i have like a whole category of, of of films that i like to watch which are just sort of like a lovely bit of sunday afternoon background stuff and this fits the bill really well because there's bits of it which are great and you can key in for them. And then there's bits where it drifts and you can just sort of drop out, check your phone, have a biscuit, and then you can come back when it gets better. Um, and for that, I'd recommend it. Like if if you've never seen it, um, give it a watch just because it's the, the work of one of the greatest living filmmakers in my shitty opinion. Um, and as such, it is it is worth seeing what he what he can do. <laughs> um, it's it's a frustrating and slightly disappointing, and there there are moments and there are there are there are opportunities for it to be something quite special, and it's not, but it is still mostly entertaining, and if nothing else, has some exceptional kind of. On the cusp of the 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 very better the very best of like f- physical practical effects and of uh, the kind of the the new generation of of um, visual effects that came through afterwards, it's for that I I, I recommend it. Uh, how about Patrick? Yeah. yeah, I hadn't seen it. Um, you know what? I'm not very familiar with National Lampoons or Chevy Chase. Really, my first impression of him was uh, Three Amigos, and I remember really enjoying that when I was younger. But Chevy Chase has always been. Uh, someone I'm, I, I feel like I'm a lot more unfamiliar with than you guys, but I do largely agree with you in part, Devlin, that this was quite an easy watch, and I found it quite harmless. Uh, we didn't speak about the CIA agent leering over the girl working out in the park, but no, yeah. uh, <laughs> on the whole, it was <laughs> yeah that fucking creep. But it, you know, it was. Oh, this is such a bad sentence to say, but the film is okay. It's fine. And you can come for the, and what I would recommend is the visual effects, because I was kind of blown away by a lot of them. And Daryl Hannah, you'll come for, and Sam Neill, despite him doing his best with some poor writing and, and her acting against nothing. I felt frustrated, and I did want more from it, and... It's a shame when you see films like this that are, you know, where the problems are and it could have easily ironed out. And if Ego hadn't been in the way, imagine what you could have had. But 
it's it, in part gets recommendation in part comes with a warning that it's it's not great and it is a missed opportunity but there was large parts i did enjoy and um some of the originality of it you know i'll always forever now take away the image of that building which i i, I thought was astonishing um which is great and thanks for recommending it um for this so galley which end of the spectrum are you on yeah, no, I think um, I think I'm probably somewhere in the middle. Um, I think Carpenter delivers on the visuals and the feel of the film. You know, he harkens back at the beginning to this Hitchcockian man on the run style. Um, but I end, in the end, I think the film ends up fighting with itself. You know, is it a chase movie? Is it a character study about what it might really be like to be invisible? Is it a love story? It ends up being kind of all of them and none of them at the same time. So I end up kind of being left quite frustrated with it um i feel like chase is is deeply miscast and i believe there is an entertaining film exploring like the troubled character who saw themselves differently to how others see him but but it's just not this and and they only touch upon it in that one scene which was my actual outside of the visual effects uh, my favorite scene in the in the entire film so i think if you enjoy visual effects driven films Especially the early, in, like the early incarnations, the opticals, and the the sort of the the birth of CGI, then uh, then you'll get some real magical moments, including that building, like you said, incredible. Um, and I think if you're a John Carpenter completionist, then by definition you should definitely see this one because, as you said, Devlin, he is a true master of cinema, and you should always try and seek out some of the misses as well as the hits and. Yeah, I think it could have been a great film. And unfortunately, I know I sound a bit deflated, but um, I think it had real great potential. And I do wonder what that original script was like and what is on the cutting room floor. So all I'm going to say is hashtag release the carpenter cut. And that's it. <laughs> but I, you know what? I, I recommend it. I actually do. I think, um, I think it's worth 99 minutes of your time, like you say, on a Sunday. And I, I think, you know, the humor's not that raunchy. I think kids could easily get a kick out of it. So yeah, I think I will re- mild recommendation. How's about that? Oh, that's sorry, right, isn't it? <laughs> I'll take that. Yeah. Right. That leaves us to Patrick. Oh my goodness. You have the honor of picking the film that we Ooh. do for Yippee. Merry Crimbo 2019. Well, so what are we going to do? I'm going to go with something of the season, Gally. Oh, thank God. And I'm going to pick our first animation. Oh, We're going to discuss The Nightmare Before Christmas, oh. please. Oh, Good one. Oh, amazing. That is great. Yeah. Yeah. It's our first Burton uh, as well, isn't it? Oh, well, it's, it's not Burton. Oh, oh, it's it's it isn't... No, I make the mistake every time. You know what? I'm, I'm doing terrible, aren't I, tonight? You know, That's... Mike Reed, Tim Burton. <laughs> Where does it go next? <laughs> you now envisioning Tim Burton working at the Queen Vic. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I, you know, that would make it. I'd watch you stand there. There's a barber shop down the road. <laughs> Get out of my pub, uh, you weird goth. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, we took Tim Burton to Albert Square. This is crazy. No, no, but I haven't seen it in a long, long time. So I'm uh, excited. Oh, but good. Genuinely. I'm glad. Normally, my Christmas films over the last few years, I've just been sticking with It's a Wonderful Life, followed by Jingle All the Way, which is a weird double bill. But that's that's just where I've been feeling the groove. So I'm happy to 
happy to go back to some jingle all the way to my grandma's all-time top three favorite christmas films that's great that's crazy (laughs) i know i love it she has it on dvd and we watch it every year jesus christ i mean that's made me legitimately very happy (laughs) (laughs) yeah oh we love you grandma i hope she's listening to this one but let's um let's make sure we get that before christmas okay i guess what that leaves us to to say our goodbyes. Uh, oh, what we will say is that uh, for those of you that wish to seek out Memoirs of an Invisible Man, it's currently on Amazon Prime. There was a Blu-ray release, but it's really scanty on special features, as in there's a five-minute documentary. That's that's a shame because uh, there's a there's a oh, US okay. release that uh, that people always talk about, which is uh, uh, Shout Factory. Shout Factory is, I guess, kind of similar to. Oh, okay. um, I guess something like Arrow Video, which is yeah, they they kind of they're putting a lot of effort into films which you wouldn't have thought would really deserve it. But uh, apparently, that is a very good um, uh, Blu-ray set. So maybe if you've got a multi-region Blu-ray player, you can yeah. seek it out. I guess that leaves us to say our goodbyes and gents. So it's Galley in Glasgow. I don't have a funny quip to say, which is in keeping with our lead actor for this <laughs> film. So. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Some very, very harsh shade being thrown. Uh, Mike Reed, you're a twat. This is Devlin (laughs) in London. I'll see you next time. (laughs) Um, Because we had Jim Norton in the film, which is great. Don't call me Len, you little prick. Uh, It's Patrick from London. See you later. I'm the invisible man. I'm the invisible man. Incredible how you can.